Word of God, if we turn to the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 14, chapter 14 in the book of Numbers, I'm going to read verses 1 to 12, and then verses 26 to 35 of chapter 14 in the book of Numbers. Then all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried. And the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said, to stone them with stones. Now the glory of the Lord appeared to the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And then turning to verse 26. (coughs) Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings which the children of Israel murmur against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, Just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcass of you who have murmured against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered, according to your entire number, from twenty years old and above. Except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. 
but your little ones, whom you have said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and bear the brunt of your fidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely forty years, and you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord, have spoken this. You will sh- I will surely do so to all this evil congregation, who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you again, Mr. Byrne, for your warm words of welcome. And uh, thank you for your, uh, the welcome that I, I experienced last week, which, which always comes through the interaction and the questions that follow the talk. And uh, glad to see you here again tonight for a second dose of this Irishman, and I trust that God's blessing will be upon us all. Yes, it's been a good time to be here, uh, not only to, to meet the Christian Institute and become familiar with the kind of work that they do, and uh, the gifted personnel that make up the team, but also to, to know that uh, God has his people here in the northeast and that you are beavering away for the Lord uh, in your own respective places of worship. That's an encouragement uh, to us in Northern Ireland because when we read the national papers, uh, all we, we hear about is uh, the evil things that go on in England. Of course, all you read about from Ireland is about all the wicked things that we're up to but uh, God is his people, and it's maybe as well that we don't uh, make the headlines because the world's not interested in the kind of things that, that we're doing. But God is interested, and we trust that he will be glorified through this lecture tonight. <clears throat> now, I trust that you will understand what I mean when I say that there's more uh, to this man than meets the eye. He's small in stature. Uh, he's grey-headed, and although he denies it, he speaks with a Geordie accent. <laughs> but there is more to him than, than meets either the eye or the ear. Uh, he is a, a man of God, as I have been discovering, a man of sterling Christian character, a man of intellect and vision, a man who's used his many gifts for the glory of God and the advancement of Christ's kingdom. I consider him to be a truly great man, and that greatness is crowned with his humility, with a gracious, kind, and unpretentious spirit. And the commandments are a bit like John. There is more to the commandments than meets the eye. Jesus made it clear that in the Sermon on the Mount there is a a spirituality about the Decalogue that we don't always see when we we read it initially. That spirituality means that the commandments call not merely for outward formal obedience. That's what the Pharisees thought. 
but rather they call for an inward and spiritual obedience as well. And so tonight we come to the third commandment, Exodus 20 and verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The key to understanding this command is the meaning and emphasis that we place on the name. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, in the West, uh, we don't place that much significance upon our names. You've heard the, the Irishman who responded when he was always being called the wrong name. He, he said, I, I don't really mind what you call me as long as you don't call me too early in the morning. <laughs> uh, but in the Eastern lands, and especially in the culture of the Old Testament, the name was very important. It was highly significant. John L. Mackay, and I'm quoting for him again tonight because he's an excellent comment, commentary on the book of Exodus, and that covers the, the commandments he has written about the third commandment. In the culture of Old Testament times, names played a somewhat different role than the one they now have. To use a name is rarely more than an identifying label for an individual, that is today. But in the ancient world, a name was often used to convey information about the nature and character of the individual involved. So writes uh, John Mackay. And what was true in general is particularly true of God. <coughs> the name of God, or the names by which God has chosen to reveal himself in Scripture. Remember the unusual question Moses asked God when considering the call to lead Israel out of Egypt. <clears throat> It's in Exodus 3, verse 13. Moses is addressing God. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? What is his name? And in asking that question, it was equivalent to asking, What sort of God is he? What revelation can you give us? about him. So you see, the name of God is highly significant. And that is the case not only because of the cultural context in which it was revealed, but because the name came from God himself. Adam did not name God, as he named everything else in the universe. Rather, God named himself. And in consequence, his name is God's revelation of himself. God's revelation of himself whereby he actively and objectively made himself known. Whereby he actively and objectively revealed himself. The name Jehovah. The name Adonai. And all the other combinations of God's name that are found in the Old Testament especially. <clears throat> The name of God in the third commandment means not only the actual word God and other divine names such as Lord, but all forms of God's self-revelation. We're not to limit it to his name. 
And so therefore this includes the general revelation of God in nature, as well as his special revelation in the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. There's a special association between the name of God and the worship of God. Because when we meet to worship God, we present our worship through the name of God's Son. We present our worship through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Westminster Divines, recognizing the meaning attached to the name, when in the Shorter Catechism, question 55, they stated the answer and the question, what is forbidden in the Third Commandment? And they simply answered it by saying, the Third Commandment forbiddeth all profaning and abusing of anything whereby God maketh himself known. So he makes himself known through his name, but he also makes himself known through general revelation and special revelation and through his Son, Jesus Christ. Apart from the Third Commandment, there are many scriptures which call upon us to exalt, to magnify, to revere, to fear the name of God. And that's especially true of the Psalms. And I've selected one or two quotations. Psalm 8 and verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 29 and verse 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Then Psalm 68 and verse 4. Sing to God, sing praise to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord, and rejoice before him. Psalm 138 and verse 2. I will bow down towards your holy temple, and will praise your name for your love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. God has exalted above all things his name and his word. We now come to do an analysis of the third commandment, having at least, I trust, some understanding of what the name of God signifies, what the name of God represents. And also I think it is helpful to bear in mind uh, the, the things that we said last week about the first four commandments and how they all relate primarily to worship. The first commandment, the object of worship. The second commandment, the manner of worship. And now the third commandment, our attitude in worship. And then the fourth commandment, time for worship. But um, coming now to the third commandment, the attitude in worship, and we'll be looking at it from a positive perspective, first of all, and then a negative perspective. So positively, uh, as we look at the positive keeping of this command, we will note that sincerity is what God requires. Sincerity. And we'll be looking at uh, sincerity under several heads. First of all, sincerity in profession of faith. Sincerity in profession of faith. I've recently marked the 27th anniversary of my ordination to the Christian ministry. 
those have been precious years, marked with many encouragements and punctuated with many thrilling and encouraging moments. But there have been sad times as well. And there have been none so sad as observing people who come before the elders of the church, they come before the congregation of God's people, they come before God himself, professing faith in Jesus Christ, vowing to love and to serve him, vowing to be loyal to him, only to demonstrate in a relatively short period of time that it was all an empty show. Time has shown that their profession of faith consisted only of the leaves of outward profession, without the ongoing fruit-bearing which is produced by inward grace. That, friends, is a blasphemy. That, friends, is a breaking of the third commandment. Jesus had this situation in mind when he gave the following <coughs> warning in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew seven twenty-one to 23 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then will I tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. People who address Christ as Lord, taking his name in vain, and yet who are unbelievers, who never know him, are described as evildoers, guilty of breaking the third commandment. Now how can we be sure that that we are not making an empty profession, that we are not taking the name of the Lord in vain by describing ourselves as Christians when we're not? In 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, we are commanded to make sure <clears throat> that we are in the faith. And the only way that we can be sure is by searching the scriptures. Because the word of God, the word of God exposes the hypocrite. It exposes the hypocrite in his hypocrisy. Whereas the word of God confirms the true believer in the faith. And so it, has, it is as we sit under the word that either our faith is confirmed or our hypocrisy is exposed. And it is as we read the word and meditate upon the word that either our faith is confirmed or our hypocrisy is exposed. And so, friends, there, there has to be, if we are to keep the third commandment, sincerity in our profession of faith. But then, maybe more obviously, sincerity in worship. When we take our place on the Lord's Day at the appointed times for worship, we are meeting to worship God. We are meeting in the name of Jesus Christ to present our worship (coughs) to the thrice holy God. And when we gather, are we worshipping God reverently and sincerely? We can only do that by joining in every act of worship 
with the lips and the mind fully engaged. We can only do that by mentally giving our assent to the public prayers as we follow each petition. For example, when, when John was praying tonight and, and we, were, we were thinking of who wasn't here or we were thinking of who extra is here or, or we were thinking of where we parked the car or we were thinking of the temperature in the building and then when John said amen, I wonder what he prayed about. Well, that's, that's, that's a breaking of the third commandment. That is blasphemy. And we can only worship God reverently and sincerely if we are listening intently as the word of God is read. See, people today say we want involvement in worship. We want uh, to do our thing in the worship. But when the word of God is read by the preacher or by the reader, we're all involved. We're all reading. We're all worshiping God as we listen intently to the word. And if our minds are elsewhere... We're breaking the third commandment. We can only worship God reverently and sincerely if we maintain concentration throughout the sermon as it is preached. Because, you see, we're, we're taking God's name in vain if we're sitting in the building and we're professing to worship God, whereas the housewife is thinking of the, the chicken in the oven, uh, the businessman is thinking of uh, what what he left in the office. Uh, the, the sportsman is thinking of the game that he played yesterday and, and all the time he's giving the impression that he's worshipping God by listening to the sermon. Hypocrisy, blasphemy, a breaking of the third commandment. Sadly, friends, I believe we must all confess that even in the very act of worship, our minds wander. We think of things that concern our own pleasure rather than the God that we have come to present our worship to. By not responding with our hearts and engaging our minds in the worship of God, we are taking his name in vain. And so we need to pray like the psalmist, Psalm 86, verses 11 and 12. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. An undivided heart that we are wholeheartedly engaged in every act of worship. And then, having prayed that, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. Sincerity in worship. That's why there has to be so much preparation for worship. I know some people and they come uh, to worship God absolutely exhausted. They've taken as much as they could out of the six days. And they just uh, sit down in church and they're not in a frame of mind or a state of body to worship God. They've, they've, they've left God the, the fag end of the week. And if nothing to give, that's not worship. That's hypocrisy. Sincerity in our prayers, thirdly. When we come to God in prayer, every word should be sincerely meant in our petitions. 
If it's not, it's merely vain repetition as the heathen do or as the Muslims say their mantras. Christians can sometimes include the name of God at the end of a petition, almost like a punctuation mark. C.H. Spurgeon, writing on the subject of prayer, denounces such a habit. And I'm quoting from him. The strongest objection exists to the constant repetition of the word Lord, which occurs in the early prayers of young converts and even among students. The words, O Lord, O Lord, O Lord, grieve us when we hear them so perpetually repeated. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain is a great commandment. And although the law may be broken unwittingly, yet its breach is still sin and a very solemn one. God's name, says Spurgeon, is not to be a stopgap to make up for our want of words. Take care, he instructs, to use most reverently the name of the infinite Jehovah. So rather than be guilty of blasphemy in prayer by taking God's name in vain, we are to revere God's name as our Lord taught us. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then, fourthly, sincerity in our oaths. Some people imagine that Christians are prohibited from swearing at any time or taking oaths at any time. And to support this point of view, the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount are used. Matthew 5, 33 to 37. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no, anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Our Lord was not prohibiting swearing per se, or taking an oath per se. A careful reading of the passage and its context would show that what our Lord was condemning was the common Jewish practice of swearing by all kinds of things, such as heaven or earth or the holy city Jerusalem or by, one, or by, by one's head. The scribes and Pharisees believed that oaths in which the name of the Lord was expressed was expressly was not expressly mentioned that these oaths were of lesser significance. One did not need to be so conscientious about keeping them. <clears throat> and so in daily conversation, oaths began to multiply. In order to make an impression, a person might enter into such an oath without making an enormous promise, or while making an enormous promise. And if the affirmation which he made was a lie, or if the promise was never meant to be kept, that was not so bad, as long as he had not sworn to the Lord. It was one of those Phariseeisms by which they evaded 
the implications and the applications of the third commandment. Jesus, in his sermon, forthrightly condemned this kind of hypocrisy. And we see clearly that it was a violation of the third commandment. And so Jesus taught his listeners not to swear at all in their daily conversation. Their reputation for speaking the truth should mean that a simple unvarnished yes or no was all that was required. There may be a debate, is there ever a place for taking an oath? The answer, I believe, is yes. In this world of dishonesty and deception, the oath at certain times, I believe, is necessary to add solemnity, to provide a guarantee of reliability. For example, in a court of law, to make an affirmation uh, to tell the truth. Nothing either, I believe, in Matthew 5 or anywhere else in Scripture forbids, (coughs) forbids this. What we have in this passage is the condemnation of the flippant, profane, uncalled for, and often hypocritical oaths used in order to make an impression or to spice up daily conversation. Against that evil, Jesus commends simple truthfulness in thought and word and deed. And with respect to lawful oaths, It is our duty to fulfill them conscientiously, to fulfill them in the fear of God, in spite of difficulty or personal loss, to fail to do so, to be guilty of breaking our oaths, to be guilty of perjury, in the words of J.G. Voss, is to commit a great sin against God. And then we come to think about sincerity in our vows, a related topic. And here we turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and to read some verses from from this chapter, 5 to 8. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. As the dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest in the temple messenger, to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore stand in awe of God. These words in Ecclesiastes apply to vows we make before God. Some people, when they're in a predicament, make a vow to God if only he will resolve their problem. Others, when faced with a serious illness, make a vow to God if only he will cure them from that illness. May they make vows such as promising to become a better person, promising to become a regular worshipper, promising to become a generous giver. 
But sadly, many such people, when their personal circumstances improve, forget God and the vows that, he has, that they have made to him. They may have forgotten God, but he will not forget them. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. Now, I'm sure many of us have entered into formal vows at one time or another. I know I have. I've taken vows of church membership. I've taken vows at my ordination and installation as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've taken vows at the baptism. Well, I better get things in the right order. I've taken vows at my wedding (laughs) to be a faithful husband. And then I've taken vows as a parent at the baptism of our children. Let's look at each of these. First of all, church membership vows. Many churches require applicants for membership to take certain vows. That is the case, such statements should be considered thoughtfully and prayerfully beforehand. And it's only after careful consideration that people should take such vows because they are taking them before God and his people. Remember, Ecclesiastes 5 and 5, it is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Then marriage vows. Days, weeks, and even months go into planning weddings. So I'm told. Much thought is given to the minutest detail. But what about the vows? Surely they are the only thing on the wedding day that have lifelong significance. The flowers will fade, the clothes will date, the friends will change, but the vows are a lifelong commitment. Yet sometimes, sometimes precious little thought is given to their nature and their content. Sometimes they are taken with the view that if things don't work out, then we can always divorce, even before they take the vows or during the vows or shortly after the vows, those thoughts can be entertained seriously, sadly. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfil it. Then we come to baptismal vows. In churches like mine, in which paid baptism is practised, parents are called upon to make solemn vows prior to the baptism of their child. These vows relate to the spiritual training of of the children that God has entrusted to their care. And again, careful thought needs to be given to the content of these vows with the earnest intent to remain faithful to them as parents. (coughs) Most of us have, have taken vows at one time or another, as I've said, but when was the last time you reflected on those vows? When was the last time you read over your vows? You asked yourself the question, am I a faithful church member? Am I a faithful marriage partner? A faithful parent? Am I a faithful minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because essentially, 
All our vows are made to God. And so we should be scrupulous in our fulfillment of them. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. And so we've been looking at the the positive aspects of the, the third commandment. Requiring sincerity in our profession of faith. Sincerity in our worship. Sincerity in our prayers. Sincerity in our taking oaths. Sincerity in our making vows. Now we come to the negative or what is forbidden in the third commandment. The larger catechism is very thorough in its answer to this question. And I would advise you, if you haven't got a larger catechism, to look out for one. Uh, It's been published recently. Uh, At least the copy I have is new, and I'm sure Christian Institute could get you a copy. But the answers they give on the commandments are very full. And this is uh, only part of what is forbidden in the third commandment, according to the Westminster Divines. The sins forbidden in the third commandment are the not using of God's name as is required and the abuse of it in an ignorant, vain, irreverent, profane, superstitious or wicked mentioning or otherwise using his titles, attributes, ordinances or works by blasphemy, perjury, All sinful cursings, oaths, vows and lots, violating of our oaths and vows. And that's about a third of the answer. I think that's about as much as you can take tonight. Well, in stressing the positive, we have already pointed out some of the, the violations of this commandment. But now let's draw your attention to some of the more obvious prohibitions. And the first that we want to look at is that the third commandment forbids blasphemy. And we're dividing blasphemy into three categories. We're guilty of blasphemy, first of all, if we take God's holy name and treat it with irreverence and contempt. There is a statement in Romans 8 and verse 7 which explains so much about our society it explains so much about our culture, explains so much to, about our world, and it is this. The sinful mind is hostile to God. And let's not be naive about it. The unbeliever, the person who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, is hostile to God. In the words of one commentator, The unbeliever cherishes a deep-seated animosity against God. Now I can think of some unbelievers and they would react to this statement by saying, I may not be a Christian, but I bear God no ill will. But I assert that he does. And he will demonstrate that hostility in a variety of ways. (coughs) Because the unbeliever is antagonistic to the will of God. That is why he will not submit to God's law. Because these laws that we are are covering, they apply to the whole of humanity. 
Every human being should keep the Sabbath day holy. Every human being is under an obligation to keep one day in the week holy to God. I've only picked that out as, as one that is obvious. Every unbeliever should worship God. All people that on earth do dwell. Sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. All people are under an obligation to worship. Whether they can or not is another matter. But they're an obligation as, as created in the image of God to do so. And so the unbeliever is antagonistic to the will of God. That is why they will not submit to God's law. The unbeliever is antagonistic to the day of God. That is why he is an unrepentant Sabbath breaker. The unbeliever is antagonistic to the word of God. That is why he seldom reads the Bible. And if he must listen to sermons, they have to be short and not too direct in their application. And the unbeliever is antagonistic to the people of God. That is why, given the choice, he will always orientate towards unbelieving company. And the unbeliever is antagonistic to the glory of God. That is why he calls creation a lie and evolution the truth. The unbeliever is antagonistic to the Son of God. That is why he will not repent and seek Christ as his Saviour and Lord. And then with particular relevance to our study this evening, the unbeliever is demonstrates his hostility towards God by being antagonistic to the name of God and all that it represents. That is why he blasphemes. Now, the percentage of true believers in our nation is small. That's a sad fact that we have to accept. And yet the whole population is constantly bringing God into their language. And into their conversation. In fact, they can er barely utter a sentence without <laughs> introducing the name of God or introducing the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. And isn't that strange? They want nothing to do with God, they reject His Word, they reject His Son, and yet they bring His name continually into their language. <clears throat> But this use of divine names is not out of any regard for God, rather the opposite. The names of God are used in a thoughtless, careless manner because they have no esteem for God at all, because there is no fear of God before their eyes. In essence, they use this blasphemous language because they have a deep-seated enmity and hostility towards the Most High God and want to trample his name into the gutter. And they want to treat it uh, with utter contempt. By using such phrases as, Good Lord, Lord have mercy, O my God, for God's sake, for Christ's sake, God's holy and matchless name, is being profaned. And by using such language, our society is in essence despising God and showing their hatred and their hostility towards God. Our society is moving in a direction that it will soon become an offence to make a flippant reference to Islam or anything associated with Islam. 
This will be, be particularly true of publications and of broadcasting. But at the same time, people in the media are at perfect liberty to denigrate the name of the God of the Bible, to use whatever profanity they choose about Jesus Christ, and objections are either ignored or ridiculed. Blasphemy, then, is the taking of God's name and treating it with irreverence or contempt. <coughs> and we ought to register our objections to this. We are people who love God. We are people who have a deep affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is how they treat him. We should contact the media. We should lodge our objections. We should protest. Protestants protest at all the, the abuses and, and all the irregularities. Or we're not true Protestants. <clears throat> Then we, we secondly notice that we are guilty of blasphemy if we make use of minced oaths. <clears throat> I'm sure you've heard of minced meat. You may not have heard of minced oaths, so let me explain. <clears throat> a minced oath is a blasphemy uttered by people who hesitate to imitate the speech of the sinful world. They nevertheless make use of minced oaths, which really is blasphemy in camouflage. And this is uh, J.G. Voss's explanation of, of minced oaths. <clears throat> the use of minced oaths is peculiarly a sin of Christian people, who often deceive their own consciences into thinking that they are not doing wrong because they do not exactly duplicate the world's bland brand of profanity. Now what does he mean and what do I mean? <clears throat> well, I remember as a teenager, uh, someone who knew and loved the Lord, that suddenly I was convicted by saying something <clears throat> Uh, by, by practicing something which I'd been saying for, for months and maybe years. I'd been saying, uh, by Jove, I'll do this. Uh, by Jove, I'll, I'll beat you next time. Where I picked it up from, I'm not sure. Uh, it certainly wasn't from my parents, but on the farm we had, we had uh, a number of men and uh, they were ungodly to say the least. And so probably it was from that kind of setting. <clears throat> Unwittingly, <clears throat> I was using a minced oath, swearing by the great and holy name of God, Jehovah. I didn't recognize it. It was God, I believe, by his spirit that convicted me of this sin. And it's made me very, very careful ever since about my speech. It's made me much more thoughtful about the language that I use. For example, you hear people saying, for Pete's sake. Maybe that's not heard here, but it's certainly common in Ireland. Where does it come from? It comes from the Apostle Peter. Uh, maybe because they think he's somewhat special, they swear by his name. 
But that's not honouring to God, that's blasphemy, that's an infringement of the third commandment. And there's many other examples. People say when they get a bit of a shock, gosh, I didn't think that was the case. But they wouldn't think of saying God, and yet that's where gosh comes from. For goodness sake, would you shut up? A parent might say to the child, but would be shocked if they realised that they're really saying for God's sake. Because that's where goodness comes from. Crikey, that's strange. Crikey comes from Christ. You see, we're so devious that we invent these words to try and evade their implications. But it's blasphemy, it's profanity. Gee whiz, gee comes from Jesus. Darn, that was sore, but darn comes from damn. To the dickens with you, to to the devil with you, to heck with you, to hell with you. And so you see, thoughtless Christians are involved continually in profaning God's holy name, God's titles, God's attributes, God's works. You see, the devil, the evil one, is very subtle leading us to camouflage our wickedness in such a way that we ourselves don't even recognize it. And so I'm sure, like me, you've been guilty of such minced oaths. But be clear, friends, the use of all forms of minced oaths is forbidden, not only by a right understanding of the third commandment, but also by But our Lord said in Matthew 5, Do not swear at all. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. We are guilty of blasphemy if we take God's holy name and treat it with irreverence and contempt. We are guilty of blasphemy if we make use of minced oaths. And then thirdly, we are guilty of blasphemy if we adopt any kind of wicked language against God. Often severe suffering or great calamities provoke people to speak in a blasphemous way against God. And that's why uh, our chairman read from Numbers chapter 14 uh, and that, that those two passages. Because there the, 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 the children of Israel were in a difficult, or they thought they were in a difficult situation. And they started grumbling and complaining bitterly against God. And God was angry. And justly angry with his people and condemned them and punished them so that that generation all fell in the wilderness. Speaking wickedly against God. A blasphemy. (coughs) For example, after the terrorist attack on the Trade Centre in September 1101, angry people said, if there's a God in heaven, he must be cruel. It's a wonder that the God in heaven didn't strike them down dead right away. Such a blasphemous remark. Writing in the wake of World War II, J.G. Voss wrote, Some say that if God is good, he should have prevented the war, that a good God would have prevented the war if he could. And since the war was not prevented, God must either be not good or else limited in his power. Thus to challenge either the goodness or the power of God is blasphemy. And we, we hear this um, all the time from people who will say, 
if God is good, why is there famine in Africa? Not recognizing that God is good, God is holy, but all mankind is wicked. And it's only by the grace and mercy of God that we get a breath every few seconds to keep us alive. The wicked hearts of men. So we've been thinking that third commandment forbids blasphemy. Uh, Related then, the third commandment forbids flippancy. Alistair Begg, whose book has been promoted, and you'll have an opportunity, I believe, to buy a few more copies tonight. Uh, He writes, uh, We are guilty of flippancy when we sprinkle God's name in our conversation in a manner that is superficial and insincere. The ungodly comedians of this world do this repeatedly and think that it is funny. God is patient. God is long-suffering. But when his wrath flares up, it is no wonder that the ungodly and the wicked will call. When the day of judgment is approaching, Revelation 6 and verse 16, speaking to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? But sadly, friends, I have sometimes heard Christians resort to telling jokes that of God or Jesus Christ in the punchline. I fear such trivialization of the Almighty is nothing short of blasphemy. Calvin's words of counsel, I believe, need to be heeded when he exhorted his readers I quote, to be so disposed in mind and speech that they neither think or say anything concerning God and his mysteries without reverence and much soberness. For example, there tends to be much flippancy these days concerning the place of eternal punishment. People talk about the hell of a day, maybe meaning a stormy day, or of a hell of a match, great match, or a hell of a fight, fright, a terrible fright. The time was when, not so long ago, when, when people were afraid to mention the term, to mention the word hell. Now, by using this term in such a flippant manner, they are trying, I believe, to condition their minds into thinking that no such, th- no such place exists. But I believe that most people deep down in their hearts have this lingering suspicion that hell does await the ungodly. Nevertheless, by trivializing the term in in this way, they suppress the truth by their wicked trivialization. But hell still awaits the ungodly. There's been a new twist to this in recent years with a whole set of new phrases, neighbours from hell or holidays from hell, tradesmen from hell, dreadful, dreadful language, the blatant infringement of the third commandment. Now I'm afraid flippancy can creep into what appears to be very pious language. You've heard people making the comment, uh, the Lord told me, or the Lord spoke to me. And such language is appropriate when people are communicating to others the challenges that they have received from God's word. Because God is a speaking God and he does speak through his word. But that's not what I'm referring to. 
It's more like <clears throat> the Lord told me to visit my neighbor or the Lord told me to send that letter. Now, it might be your Christian responsibility to visit your neighbor or to send a letter of sympathy to a friend, but to say the Lord told you suggests that somehow or other you have a hotline to heaven that I don't have. And such language is blasphemous because you don't have a hotline to heaven and neither do I. Preachers can be guilty of such blasphemy even in the act of preaching by introducing their sermons with the remark, the Lord told me to say to you today. Now it sounds very impressive. It sounds as if this man's very close to the Lord, but I've been 27 years in the ministry and the Lord has never spoken directly to me in such a way that I can authoritatively stand up and say, the Lord told me last night. The Lord tells me through the Bible and that gives me authority to say, thus saith the Lord because he has written his word and I I am to proclaim it. Such preachers were around in Jeremiah's day and God had strong words to say to them. Jeremiah 23, 31. I am against the prophets who wag their own tongues and yet declare, the Lord declares. Well, in conclusion, what about, what about the, the penalty for breaking the third commandment? <clears throat> Our nation has removed the blasphemy laws from the statute book. So no one today will be punished in the United Kingdom for uttering dreadful blasphemies. But will they go unpunished? According to the commandment, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who taketh his name in vain. Every blasphemy, every profanity, every flippant reference to God's name, to God's titles, God's attributes, to God's ordinances, to God's word, to God's works is registered in God's book. And we are told that God will not hold those guilty of these sins guiltless. But where does that leave you? And where does it leave me? We've all been guilty in the past. And there's not a day in the present in which we are not guilty. And I'm sure there's not a day in the future in which we will not be guilty of taking the Lord's name in vain. That's bad news. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who taketh his name in vain. But there is good news. There is good news if we are in Christ if we are united to Christ by faith, if we are resting all our hope on him tonight as as our saviour, as the son of God who went to the cross to bear the punishment of our sin upon his own body on the tree, because there on the tree, there at Calvary, he bore the divine penalty for all the sins of all his people, All your profanities and all my profanities, past, present and future, were laid upon him. And so, in Christ, united to Christ by faith, 
There is free and full forgiveness. And that is the blessing of the gospel. Jesus Christ on the cross took away all our guilt. He appeased the holy wrath of God. He has paid all the debt. He has paid the ransom price and so we are saved from the punishment that we deserve for sin. Saved from the wrath to come. Saved to love God. Saved to honour God. Saved to hold his name in high esteem. Saved to keep the commandments of the Lord our God. And for those who know and love the Lord, those commandments are not irksome. They're not grievous. They're not burdensome. John Newton, before his conversion, was a notorious blasphemer. But what a change Christ brought into his life, leading him to compose the words, How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fears. Make sure tonight that that change has taken place in your life, that to you the name of Jesus is not merely a byword, but is precious. If tonight you're not a Christian, and I can never assume any time I'm speaking that everyone's a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you must seek the Lord, or you will be condemned through all eternity for all the blasphemies and all the profanities that you have uttered knowingly or unknowingly. Seek him as your saviour. Serve him as your Lord and master. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic in your name in all the earth. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendour of his holiness sing to God sing praise to his name extol him who rides in the clouds his name is the Lord and rejoice before him I will bow down towards your holy temple and will praise your name for your love and your faithfulness for you have exalted above all things your name and your word Amen Thank you very much indeed, Professor Colum, for that great challenge tonight. Can we just have a few minutes where we can think of what has been said and uh, the invitation is for questions and comments just a little later. So just for a few moments, let's do that. Right. Would someone like to ask the first question? Preferably someone who's not yet asked a question at any of our meetings tonight, uh, so far in the series. 
John. Can you uh, speak into that and so we can just pick up the question as well? And you've got to do the two things, speak loudly as well, because there are folk behind the, the doors there as well. Are we allowed to say, oh, fiddlesticks? The question is... The <laughs> question is, can you say, oh, fiddlesticks? Did you hear that? Why would you want to say that? <laughs> Never ask an artist in the question. <laughs> I don't think we can become too legalistic, but we should think in terms of there's any reference to God or the Godhead or things that are holy and divine or serious that we, we should refrain from saying them. So I wouldn't want us to get too tied up and too legalistic about what we say. So if there's... Uh, I don't know where fiddlesticks comes from. But. I mean, it, it, it's difficult, really, to understand, but a lot of the time in our personalities, we, we, we're in situations where we're frustrated. or um, We're just frustrated and we just want to say something, and maybe that's not right, but... Surely not. I can't quite believe what I'm hearing. <laughs> <laughs> but, but surely they can't... I'm, I'm just thinking, I hope there's nothing wrong with saying things. Like We, we, we have lots of different things. Um, oh, well, dearie you, me, do you, do you, for example. Well, yeah. do, you, do you understand what I'm trying to say, that there's many things that people say thoughtlessly and carelessly, mm. uh, and they're blasphemies. Mm. So we've got to be careful what we're saying, and, and if we can restrain our, our speech, probably it's all to the good, the better, and, and uh, ask God to help us cope with our frustrations. Maybe it's a good rule as a teacher to think first and then speak. <laughs> Just a A very practical question. You're in the company of non-Christian people and they take the name of the Lord in vain. What do you say to them? Did you hear the question? I hope that you are sometimes in the company of non-Christian people. If you are, and they take the Lord's name in vain, how do you respond? It's, not, it's a very difficult question from the point of view that I think it depends on our relationship with the people. That if we've established the right before them as a person of God and they know that they have used this blasphemy in front of a Christian, then we can quietly say to them, uh, do you know what you've done? You've spoken about my saviour. Uh, but if it's a total stranger, I think we, we're, we're only inflaming the situation because they don't know who we are and, and we don't know who they are. So I think it depends on our relationship. But if it's someone, family person who knows us and knows our stand, knows our love and loyalty to Christ, we, we ought to, to, to make use of the situation to quietly and graciously and tenderly Say to them, do you know what you're, who you're talking about? That person is precious to me. So we're, we're not, as it were, coming on top of them to convict them or condemn them in a, a supercilious sort of way, but, but convict them and we hope with the truth. That's not a cop-out, but I, I think that would be the way I would approach it. I mean, I talked last year about Charles Oxley, and um, if you remember, some of you who are here, uh, and... In the book on him, it quotes his, I think it's his daughter, 
who worked for a boss who was always profaning the name of the Lord Jesus constantly. And she very bravely said, do you mind? You're speaking of my best friend and my saviour, and I'd rather you stopped it. She kept her job, and I think in at least in her company, he stopped saying it too. So sometimes it can be effective. There was a hand going up at the back here. John. Um, surely uh, all Christians have a hotline to God, have they not? Uh, you know, God, God does speak to us through the Holy Spirit, doesn't he? The question is, haven't all Christians got a hotline to God? Does he not speak to us through his Holy Spirit? Is that the question? Yeah. Yes, he does, but he doesn't bypass his word. Uh, it's through the word that God speaks to me. It's through the principles of God's word that, God, that he speaks to me. And the Holy Spirit illuminates the pages, illuminates the message. And it's, uh, I have no authority ever to stand up before a congregation and say, Thus saith the Lord, if it hasn't demonstrated demonstrably arisen from the, the word of God uh, I'm not saying that God doesn't communicate to our thoughts and, and give us peace about things but, but I have no right to say that God said to me authoritatively I may emotionally feel that God would have to check it out because people in this day and age are we're in a feeling, a feeling orientated culture especially in the church an experience orientated society and people are going astray from God's authoritative revealed word. So uh, it's a very dangerous thing to, for people to think that God is communicating directly. And, and of course they're going in all kinds of ways because God professedly is saying something to this person, something else to that person. And it's chaos. This is the word of the Lord. And by this we take our, our stand. Yeah, well, I, 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 I understand that. Yeah. You know, it must line up with scripture. But surely God can speak to us. You know, there is prof uh, people who are prophesying today. Uh, you're probably not, uh, I, I don't know how you feel about that, but I believe well, I'm that. I'm a prophet, but only in the sense that I proclaim God's word as it's revealed. I don't believe that there are prophets outside and beyond the word of God, but that's, there's a theological difference there, and we may have to leave it at that point. I know I'm not meant to have opinions at all. <laughs> uh, I've frequently been put in a work situation where Christians have said to me, I'm sorry, I can't do that because God has told me that I can't. And maybe I've wrongly uh, said, well, I'm sorry, we're in the same situation and he hasn't said it to me. And sometimes, you know, I've been confronted with people who appear to be having been told by God things which his word contradicts, and that can never be so, surely. I've, I've had an illustration of that. Pastorally, I, I dealt with um, a couple who were, well, um, the man uh, and his, his girlfriend at the time, and he was going to marry a member of our congregation, and I noticed in the local paper he'd been playing cricket on the Lord's Day. And so I, in a hopefully gracious day, approached this subject, uh, and I was quite nervous about approaching it and challenging them. Uh, and then when they said, no, there's no problem, because we prayed about it, and God said it was all right. And I said to them, we didn't need to pray about it. God had already spoken. Uh, just, just bearing out what you say, people, 
try to justify their sins by saying, uh, God has told me, and, and uh, that, that can't be right. Isn't right. I promise to say nothing else. Next question. There's a hand up behind the pillar, John. You're talking about uh, having sincerity in oaths, and you're talking in Matthew 5 that you're yea be yea and you're nay be nay. What would be your guidance as a witness in a court of law? When I been, I've been a witness on quite a few occasions in different things, and I chose to affirm rather than place my hand on the Bible and say, I swear by Almighty God. Have we all got the question? If you call into the court as a witness, uh, is it better to affirm or are we permitted to put our hands on the Bible and say, we swear by Almighty God that we will tell the truth? I think that was the question, wasn't it? Well, I was a witness, in, I think, only on one occasion. And I told the official at the, uh, uh, of the court beforehand that I wouldn't be swearing on the Bible, that I had a conscientious objection. And he said, well, there's an alternative to put up your hand and affirm to tell the whole truth. And the judge got angry with me. What sort of a person are you? And muttered and got on. <laughs> but, but he recognised that I had a legitimate right to do this. And that's what I did. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a wrong use of the Bible. It's almost a superstitious use of the Bible. Uh, and so uh, there is that. And that's the advice that I would give. That's what our church uh, teaches. Uh, and so, um, uh, for what it's worth, that's my answer. Thank you.